In the study that I conducted for publication in 2009, one of the participants was delivered to the study abroad site by her mother. She was then visited by her father, by her brother, by her boyfriend, and by her sister, such that out of the 16 weeks that she spent in the town where she was supposedly integrating Uh and learning French, she was on her own for maybe half the time. Abroad is not as abroad as it used to be. Mm You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I'm Dan Gable, Technology Manager for the LRC. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Celeste Kinginger, Professor of Applied Linguistics at Penn State University, joins our podcast to discuss what helps and hinders advancing language proficiency while studying abroad, including social interactive and pragmatic aspects of language acquisition. Celeste also provides advice for students and instructors to make the most of their time abroad. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. It is my pleasure today to welcome Celeste Kinginger to our show. Dr. Kinginger is professor of applied linguistics at the Pennsylvania State University and is at Cornell as part of our LRC speaker series. She gave a talk last week titled Language Learning in Intercultural Encounters Abroad, and we will extend our conversations about language learning abroad on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Celeste. Thank you very much, Angelica. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we would like to talk a little bit more about language learning abroad. But before we get started, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your own background, the research that you do? Yes, of course. Um, I've been involved in language acquisition research since I finished my Ph.D. at the University of Illinois in 1989. Mm -hmm. And in the early years, I worked on classroom discourse research Mm -hmm. and teacher education research to some extent. I was involved in um, the early years of the approach we now call Mm telecollaboration, which involves um, putting together classes on both sides of the, well, in my case, in both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, My learners of French would have a a partner class in France Mm -hmm. consisting of learners of English, and we designed materials and activities for both of those groups to work together. Uh, using some of the earlier technological uh, yeah. <laughs> tools that were available at the time. Um, and uh, and then I, I, I think it was about 16 years ago that our um, at Penn State we re- received our first grant from the United States Department of Education's mm-hmm. Title VI program uh, for National Foreign Language Resource Centers. Yeah. And the theme of our resource center is advanced language proficiency, education, and development. Yeah. So I decided at the beginning of that process that one of the things that would interest me most, I've always been interested in, in environments for language learning and mm-hmm. how context affects the uh, process and the outcome. Mm-hmm. So I launched my first project at that point on study abroad. That was a large-scale, no, it was a medium-scale empirical study Mm -hmm. that involved a mixed methods investigation of language learning and life histories of Hmm. uh, about 23 students from Penn State who were studying abroad in France and was published as the very first modern language journal monograph in 2008. Mm -hmm. 
And then, um, as I was working on that first empirical project, I began to gather all of the literature that I could find yeah. on the topic of language learning in study abroad. And, mm-hmm. and my literature review outgrew its original function sure, and became a, a separate book, uh-huh. uh, which was a critical overview of language learning in those contexts. We continued to get funding from, for another those were the first two four-year cycles. In uh, the third, uh, I requested and received funding to study how languages are learned in mealtime socialization practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, In that case, it was a group of high school students learning Chinese. Hmm. Um, and my, with myself and my, my uh, research assistants, uh, doctoral students, yeah. I had the great good fortune of having research assistants who also became my doctoral advisees. Mm, nice. Yeah. Uh, we have been carrying out studies in that context uh, for some time now, yeah. including the two dissertations. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And now I am still working on those data. I'm also collecting similar data from the, in collaboration with the Dickinson uh, in France Study Abroad Center. Mm-hmm. I'm going back to my original interest in French yeah, language socialization. Nice. That project is underway. <laughs> Uh (laughs) And alongside that project, I also have another grant from the U.S. Department of Education to conduct a nationwide survey of uh, alumni of of study abroad programs Mm -hmm. who who still have proficiency in a a language other than English and who also did uh, international education experiences Mm -hmm. at some point during their education. So, and that's happening when the survey is complete. My next step will be to gather life history interviews from about 60 people of varying ages, uh, working in different employment sectors and um, with just different life stories to see Mm -hmm. if I can gather enough material to write a a book for the general public Mm -hmm. about that experience and its impact on careers. Interesting. So. Those are fascinating projects. <laughs> I guess you know how to keep yourself busy. <laughs> I seem to be allergic to working on, on less than two or three things at yeah. the same time. So, yeah. Multitasking at its best. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so if we look at students who are um, studying abroad, specifically at their language development, um, what are some of the factors that keep students from advancing their language proficiency while they're abroad and maybe also while they're on campus in regular language classes? What are some of the things that you've seen in your research? In terms of the study abroad setting, the probably the most important thing that I notice about contemporary study abroad is that students are not there. Hmm. That is, they go mm-hmm. where they're going but for various reasons, they're not engaged yeah. in the local activities that are available to them at the location where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. um, getting involved in uh, communicative practices, let's say. Yeah. Um, and that's for various reasons. Um, one is that we have now the capability to surround ourselves with our own communicative, personalized environment. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not the case in the past. And I sure. know this. there's a great deal of hand-wringing and lamentation amongst people of my generation about this because we remember, I remember in particular, um, one of my most intensive language learning study and study abroad experiences was uh, working on a small farm in southern France hmm. um, for a summer in a town where there was one telephone. Yeah. Oh. And sure. people didn't actually believe it worked. So... <laughs> 
for long distance calls. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, there were no speakers of English. There was no access to English yeah. anywhere in my environment. Whereas nowadays, it's really easy to sure. stay very much connected to one's home and mm-hmm. um, one's own social network from mm-hmm. home. Um, there's not as much impetus to integrate with the local communities as there once was. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, certainly the case. Also, there's a uh, some students' motives for studying abroad are uh, we as language acquisition researchers will um, assign them an identity as language learners mm-hmm. when in fact that that's really not why they're abroad. Um, they're they're there to gather cultural capital. Sure. Um, signs of you know developing a middle brow consumerist mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. lifestyle. Uh, they travel a lot while they're abroad in order yeah. to collect memories of mm-hmm. um, significant monuments that they've seen that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of their travel is a lot easier for everyone, and so we also find that. Um, students who go abroad now are frequently accompanied physically by members of their own families or their mm-hmm. home-based social networks. Mm-hmm. Um, in the study that I conducted for publication in 2009, one of the participants was delivered to the study abroad site by her mother. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, she was then visited by her father, by her brother, by her boyfriend, and oh, by my. her sister, huh. such that for long periods of time such that out of the 16 weeks that she spent in the town where she was supposedly integrating Uh and learning French, she was on her own for maybe half the time. Wow. So, um, that's, uh, that's another issue. I guess. Sure. That will have a big impact on just immersing yourself in the language and in the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's abroad is not as abroad as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think students who are sincere about learning, a foreign language really need to foreground their identities as language learners. Yeah, there's a there's also of course this, the the spread of of English as a lingua franca, mm-hmm. um, which makes it for anglophone students that provides a, an extra ch- set of challenges um, for two reasons. One of them is that English as a lingua franca is the preferred medium. Mm-hmm for interaction amongst uh, groups of students in many international yep. settings. And the other reason, it, which is the findings on this are just beginning to emerge, but we suspect that students who are speakers of English or other world languages like Spanish or French and who have not had significant experiences of struggle to communicate in another language are poor speakers of the lingua franca version of their language. Hmm. So you can go abroad mm-hmm. as a speaker of English and be a poor speaker of English as a lingua franca and therefore become a dispreferred interlocutor mm-hmm. um, and be excluded from interesting yeah. uh, social groups yeah. abroad because you lack the empathy. Of course. You, you pepper your talk with, uh, with baseball metaphors and yeah. that sort of thing. Or, yeah. you know, you're not, you haven't thought uh, enough about what the difficulties are that people experience yeah. when they're encountering someone with unexamined native capabilities. Um, Do you have some advice for teachers who lead study abroad programs or even individuals who prepare students for study abroad programs on on what they can tell students to make the most of, of their time abroad? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I mean, I think there are, there are there are various levels of advice one might provide. Uh-huh. Um, some of the most exciting research that I've seen lately comes from a, a program called the LangSnap program. It's mm-hmm. a, a, a British pro- a project that followed a number fifty some um, Anglophone British speakers mm-hmm. uh, of, of learners of French and Spanish. Um, over several years now, I, I believe it's. I'm not quite sure how far far along it is now, but it's becoming a longitudinal uh, project. And they they measured all manner of uh, aspects of language proficiency and other um, dimensions, learning dimensions surrounding that. But they also had a significant qualitative component to their study. Mm-hmm. Um, and their findings were that first of all, um, if you look. Well, if you look at the at the gainers, the the ones who made the most progress, mm-hmm. what you find is that these are people who have a clear vision of themselves as multilinguals. They're mm-hmm. in their imagination. There is an appealing vision of the self as yeah. a speaker of another language. They are also people who are resilient. Mm. You know, so they mm-hmm. come in. Many students who. Um, embark on study abroad for language learning purposes have some ideals that they, they they have specific things that they think they would like they would yeah. like particularly to have to develop friendships uh-huh. often that's a very common yep. thing that students say um, that doesn't always happen sure um, but there are many other ways in which you can become involved in local communities mm-hmm. so the gainers in this study were the ones who were resili- were resilient about that they would accept whatever opportunities were given to them mm-hmm. to become engaged members of their community and therefore get um, many opportunities to interact yeah. and learn from uh, local inhabitants. The other thing that they found was that that these st- successful students had some, they, they allowed themselves to, to develop some sort of emotional attachment mm. to w- at least one person in their environment. And it doesn't seem to matter wh- who that person is. Okay. It could be a friend. It could be a host parent. It could be a teacher. Mm-hmm. It could be a supervisor at work. Um, it could be members of a team that mm-hmm. they joined to do sports yeah. or what have you. But the, those who had developed some sort of strong, effective connection. And that means what in order to do that means that you have to be where you are. Sure. You know, you have to be in the the location mm-hmm. that you have selected and not waste your time, so to speak, yeah. or lose, you know, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of language learning, it is a waste of time, I think, to spend your a good portion of your study abroad period, especially if it's short, um, traveling to other locations, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. I was discussing earlier. Um, in terms of the, the, one of the things that surprises me about study abroad programs is that um, it's, they are under considerable pressures from all the different angles, all the different parties who have an interest in this. Mm. So their curricula have to mesh with the curricula of, of the home um, of course. Uh, schools. Yeah. And this pushes them more often than I think should be the case towards not rec- recognizing within their curricula the value of the local environment. Mm-hmm. So the the they... I feel strongly that study abroad language curricula should involve projects that take advantage of the environment. Yeah. Um, maybe 
investigations of the linguistic landscape or small ethnographic mm-hmm. projects that students have to do, you know, and maybe even, you know, structured conversations. You know, it's hard to, for me to rec- recommend that because yeah. I fundamentally don't like the idea of t- turning to a student saying, go have a structured conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, but if students are having a hard yeah. time making connections with their host family, for instance, you know, then the, the programs, I think, should intervene um, to give the student a strong reason to initiate that conversation. Sure. And also, I think the best programs that I've seen are programs that do intervene when there's conflict taking place mm-hmm. um, in homestays or other yeah. living environments and provide us a, a, a locus for mediation mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, discovery of what's going yeah. on. Because very often uh, study abroad participants are, they're, not very often, almost always, they are novice participants in the environments that they're frequenting, so they don't by definition, understand what the motivations sure. of their interlocutors are. Of course. Um, and can leap to conclusions way before yeah. one should. So um, that's another yeah. another investment that the profession could make to improve these ex- uh, experiences as mm-hmm. language learning experiences. Yeah. Although, you know, I know it's difficult that you know, mm-hmm. the resources frequently are not available. Sure, sure. <laughs> right. Do you think we can somehow take advantage of the fact that our students are so tapped into their social networks through Mm. their phones or computers while they are abroad and somehow turn that around so that they can engage more deeply in the target culture with the target language? That should be the that should be the the, one of the major projects for the profession, I think, coming up um, that we need to see if we can, especially if we can work on engaging students uh, before they go abroad mm-hmm. in learning about the environment that they're mm-hmm. frequenting, learning mm-hmm. about images of their country yeah. um, in the places that they're visiting so that they're prepared to see and hear the kinds of things that are said about their country, yeah. you know, in this case, the United States. Yeah. Um, also, I think that the Telecollaborative classroom has a lot of potential mm-hmm. for um, setting students up to have prior experience in interacting with people who are uh, not in a professorial role. That's a good point, yeah. Um, and maybe in having conversations that have some consequences for their self-image mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and... Uh, and also getting exposed to the varieties of language that people actually mm, sure. use. Yep, true. Um, you know, I'm, I, I know it's the, certainly the case for the languages that I have used and taught and have been exposed to that the the textbook version. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, very different <laughs> from what you actually encounter when you're abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's. Well, you know, in the case of French, there's an old, there's an, uh, a, a long history of uh, linguistic insecurity that mm-hmm. stands in the way of there being any kind of resu- you know, easy resolution mm-hmm. to this problem, um, because, well, you know, any traditionally at least, you know, even very expert speakers of French will pass judgment on other very expert speakers mm. of French because they're not, they're very 
focused on what you know what's pure and true yeah, and correct yeah. about the language and and um that also then is applied to to learners by teachers and even by native speaking hosts and mm-hmm. such that such that they they don't get a chance to deal with the fact that the the real language that people use yeah uh in informal situations regardless of how educated they are does not correspond to the sanctioned mm-hmm, version mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. um i think getting a taste just a taste of that and and understanding that you know some of the frustration you may feel in the first week or two uh may stem from the fact that you have not been learning the same variety of the language that is practiced uh in informal yeah uh, settings yeah yeah very interesting uh, So one other area that you've done a lot of research on is pragmatic aspects of language. Mm-hmm. Um, can you briefly talk about some of the differences that we encounter trying to teach these social <laughs> interactive and pragmatic aspects um, in traditional classrooms and then the the disconnect um, with, I mean, similar to what you just talked about with students encountering different varieties maybe of the target language mm-hmm. once they're abroad? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's easy. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, we, uh, uh, we, certain, certain dispositions are not allowed in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the classroom languages that language that we encounter has been sanitized hmm. to some degree, yeah. if not entirely. So there are whole registers mm-hmm. that are important for students to know. If they want to develop advanced proficiency, sure. you need to know the. You need to understand the entire range. Um, you need to understand the lower, so so to speak, uh, aspects mm-hmm. registers of the language yep. as well as the 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 sort of medium neutral ones and the very very elevated ones. And you need to understand that, for instance, if you speak in a very bookish elevated style mm-hmm. it can be interpreted as as sarcasm or sure. you know there's a, a whole lot of language awareness that needs to happen for students to develop advanced proficiency mm-hmm. and again i'm working with this this center which has a focus on advanced mm-hmm. proficiency mm-hmm. so we think about these things all the yeah. time yeah. um so th- there's that fact that you know it's 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 unseemly to represent Mm-hmm. Uh, certain aspects of languages in the classroom. So you will you and you will have you can have ersatz performances of strong emotions, and you can have media-based representations of strong emotions in the classroom. But you're not going to have actual strong emotions. Mm-hmm. You're not the student is not going to encounter someone who is genuinely angry with them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And, you know, (laughs) and and expressing it in a way that is unseemly for the classroom. So that's that's part of the problem. You know, it's it's um, it's and yet, you know, that this is this is this is really necessary. So and apart from that, um, again, you know, any we see, for instance, that students can develop great uh, fluency in classrooms and especially in domestic immersion programs. Um, but if you make a mistake, if you're at a domestic immersion program, for instance, and you make a, a mistake in, you know, ordering, you still get your lunch. Sure, sure. You know, um, <laughs> and, 
and you know you still get something that is yeah. not going to scare you or frighten you or yeah. put you off you know so um so we the the wonderful thing about about life outside the classroom in an in, in L2 land, as Jim Coleman used to say, mm-hmm. is that you have these interactions that actually have consequences. Um, and that's hard to reproduce yeah. in any, any engineered mm-hmm. environment. And it's best, for, it's best for learning pragmatics because pragmatics is at the intersection between um, what we call pragmalinguistics and sociopragmatics, right? Mm-hmm. So you have your resources, you have your forms, and you also have your application of those forms to the performance, the appropriate performance of whatever action you want to perform. And um, it's there is some interesting work on teaching this through concept-based instruction, but that's mm-hmm. for a different podcast. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> but but uh, 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 you know, I don't think that it's easy to really convey to students in, in any a priori educational setting, you know, that you can cause serious misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Even if you're doing it with full awareness, you know, and for your own purpose, you, you may not fully understand what it means to use a, a particular form, how it is locally interpreted, what the norm is for that interpretation yeah. locally. Um, so you can only really get that from having a series of real life experiences. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I have so many more questions and there's so much more that we could talk about, but um, we are about out of time here. So I would like to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Wonderful. Next week, we will look at one way to maximize intercultural encounters for language and culture learning on campus. I will speak with Melina Draper, Associate Director of Inclusive Teaching in Cornell Center for Teaching Innovation. We will talk about an exciting initiative that is currently underway on our campus, the Cornell Portal. It is part of a global public art initiative that uses immersive audiovisual technology to connect with people in other portals across the U.S. and also around the world. If you want to check it out before our next episode, The gold-painted shipping container is located just outside of Olin Library on the Art Squad. Until next week, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lupowitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lupwitz. Original music by Sam Lupwitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.